Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. 37-year-old David Swanson writhed on the ground. His heart pounded and his breath came in gasps. He knew that a critical moment had arrived. He felt a powerful force spilling into his mind and soul, like a possession out of the Bible. But instead of a demon taking over his body, it was something else, an intense presence of love and light. God himself, known as Garasana, entered David's body, becoming one with him. David's wife leaned over him, clutching his hand. She looked concerned, but also ecstatic. He realized that she too could feel the energy shifting, the light radiating from his body. She sensed the change taking place inside of him. As soon as he saw her face, David felt more certain than ever that this was all real. It had to be if they both felt it. The year 1987 felt like another year zero. God had returned to earth once more, and he had chosen David as his vessel. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll talk about a group called Miracle of Love, launched by a married couple, David Swanson and Carol Seidman. Both were devotees of the Hare Krishna movement, but when that group splintered, they found their own path to enlightenment. We'll also discuss the dramatic spiritual awakening that prompted the couple to establish new identities and begin preaching to the public. Next week, we'll talk about how Miracle of Love survived despite loss and upheaval. By the 2000s, individuals from all over the world handed over their life savings and surrendered everything to the cause. We'll have all this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Miracle of Love was formed more than 30 years ago, and it's still active today. Perhaps its success stems from offering services that seem fairly benign. They claim they can improve people's lives by teaching guided meditation. It sounds simple and accessible, a habit anyone can pick up to ease stress and find peace. But for many individuals, the more they turn to Miracle of Love for enlightenment, the more they were forced to relinquish control they soon found themselves giving up autonomy over their money, their time, and their lives. There are few details available about founder David Swanson's early life. However, an ancestry record matching David's description indicates that he was born in Guttenberg, Iowa in 1950. Looking back on his formative years, the group's website later described him as a quiet child drawn to solitude. David came of age in the 1960s, at the dawn of the New Age spirituality movement. 
1965 Immigration and Nationality Act put an end to quota restrictions and made the process for family reunification much easier. This led to a dramatic increase in immigration from Asia, and many Americans became more interested in the Eastern religions these immigrants brought with them. Practices like transcendental meditation gained favor when celebrities like the Beatles endorsed it. Spiritually, much of America seemed at a turning point. As a teenager, David was no different. He became fascinated with spiritual ideas related to reincarnation and the rebirth of the soul. These beliefs led him to the Hare Krishna movement, a popular and controversial branch of Hinduism that sprang up in New York City in 1966. According to David's bio page on the Miracle of Love website, he joined this group in his early 20s. In reality, though, he may have been even younger. Joseph Zimhart, who writes on cults, briefly mentioned David in a chapter of a 2018 textbook called New Religious Movements and Counseling. According to Joseph, David became a Hare Krishna at just 17 years old. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Whether a teenager or young adult, David was primed to fall under the influence of a religious movement. Kylie C. Jong, a lecturer at the Unitech Institute of Technology in Auckland, New Zealand, discussed this phenomenon in a 2017 article. Jong wrote, Youths are intellectually and spiritually open to new ideas. Unfortunately, they have not achieved the balance of experience and maturity that would enable them to sort truth from illusion and reality from fantasy in all situations. In this instance, teenage naivete wasn't the only factor at play. Alternative religious groups were particularly alluring in the 1960s. David wasn't the only young adult drawn to them. The Hare Krishna movement, founded by Indian spiritual teacher Srila Prabhupada, happened to explode in popularity just as David discovered it. Born in Calcutta in 1896, Prabhupada lived most of his life in India as a Hindu religious scholar. That was until the 1960s when he felt called to become a missionary and share sacred Hindu texts like the Bhagavad Gita with the Western world. The 69-year-old traveled to New York in 1965. There, he built a small group of disciples, and they built a temple and a former gift shop. From these modest beginnings, the Hare Krishna movement traveled west to San Francisco. Along the way, the charismatic Prabhupada picked up thousands of young followers. Prabhupada taught his congregation to devote themselves to the Hindu deity, Krishna, who they consider the highest god. They showed Krishna their devotion with frequent meditating, bhakti yoga, and most distinctively, public chanting. Additionally, they practiced vegetarianism, abstained from drugs and alcohol, and advocated for celibacy outside of marriage. Today, most Hare Krishnas live in India. Those living in the United States are mostly South Asian immigrants or people of South Asian descent, but that wasn't the case in the religion's early days. Many of Prabhupada's first followers were white baby boomers like David. They were disillusioned with mainstream culture and were caught up in the anti-establishment movements of the 60s. As Washington Post journalist Julie Zalzmer describes, Back then, members of the Hare Krishna faith were mostly young white hippies drawn to a new version of counterculture spirituality. They gave up their jobs and their homes, and then they gave up alcohol and extramarital sex. They went to live in remote communes and proselytized to strangers in airports. During his early time with the Hare Krishnas, David met a young woman named Carol Seidman. 
Born in 1955, Carol grew up in Palm Springs, California. Raised in a Jewish family, at 18 years old, Carol embarked on a trip to Israel. She later claimed that this trip jump-started her journey into spiritualism. If Carol's family thought that the trip to Israel would help Carol connect to her Jewish roots, it didn't turn out that way. Carol said that she instead felt compelled to learn more about Jesus. She felt drawn to the Sea of Galilee, where according to New Testament scripture, Christ walked on water. While wandering along the shore, Carol had what she described as her first spiritual awakening. She never elaborated on what this awakening meant but it's clear that her trip inspired her to further explore her faith. Despite feeling connected to Jesus during her trip, Carol didn't pursue Christianity when she returned home to California. Instead, she joined the Hare Krishna movement in San Francisco. By then, in 1973, the religion thrived with tens of thousands of members. They developed flashy recruitment efforts in airports and on street corners that made them a fixture of pop culture. While with the Hare Krishnas, Carol enjoyed learning about the concepts of reincarnation and rebirth, and she felt inspired by their meditation exercises. She said her experience with the group was a time of disciplined spiritual practice, as well as great love and joy. It's not clear when exactly Carol met David Swanson. According to the group, she met David while both of them were studying with the same spiritual master, presumably referring to Prabhupada. After meeting David, they formed a very strong spiritual partnership. Together, David and Carol focused on meditation and prayer. They set a lofty goal for themselves in line with their Hare Krishna roots. Through their studies, they hoped to achieve full union with God. Unfortunately, they would have to achieve this goal without their master. In 1977, Srila Prabhupada died suddenly. His followers struggled in the aftermath of his death. Without their charismatic leader, the movement faced financial difficulties. Hare Krishna's remaining leadership soon sold off the group's property in New York City. The group then splintered off into smaller subgroups, and many participants left the religion entirely. It seems that Carol and David left the Hare Krishnas around this same time. They were going through changes in their personal lives as well. Records indicate that 25-year-old Carol likely gave birth to her daughter Maha in 1980. However, this didn't stop the pair from looking to fulfill their goal of finding unity with God. In the mid-1980s, they developed an interest in another Indian spiritual guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, also known as Osho. It's not clear how devoted they were to Osho's teachings. However, it's been said that they socialized with Osho's followers and that David adopted many of Osho's meditation techniques. Like Prabhupada, Osho preached about the ideas rooted in Hindu spirituality, among other religious traditions. His philosophies of mindfulness and meditation were familiar tenets of many Eastern religions. However, one of the biggest differences that distinguished Osho from other spiritual leaders was his openness about sex and free love, to the point that he became known in some circles as the sex guru. This stood in direct opposition to the beliefs of followers of the Hare Krishna movement, who preached celibacy except for reproduction. David and Carol cited the Hare Krishna movement as pivotal to their spiritual awakening, but they were also drawn to many of Osho's ideas, including his sexual liberation beliefs. Then, in 1987, David had a spiritual awakening. He believed he'd found a key to the Almighty, one that might bring a close to the couple's decades-long journey toward God. Soon, David was transformed. Up next, David becomes one with the divine. 
Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the 1980s, David Swanson and Carol Seidman grappled with the decline of the Hare Krishna movement after the death of their leader, Srila Prabhupada. In the following years, many religious offshoots formed as Hare Krishnas found other spiritual paths. David and Carol were among those trying to find a way forward. They dabbled in the teachings of another spiritual teacher, Osho, but it doesn't appear that they became wholehearted followers. Around 1987, while settled in California, they devoted all their time to forming a stronger union with God. They believed they could find this connection by letting go of physical attachments and breaking free of the material world. It's difficult to know the exact methods they used to achieve this. The stories they later told were likely exaggerated for dramatic effect. According to an anonymous source in an online forum, David and Carol claimed that their search led them to a wooded forest. There, they laid prostrate on the ground for two years, searching for God to come to them. Whatever they did, it seemed to work, at least from their point of view. David claimed he felt God's energy trying to communicate with him. Over time, David understood that God was asking to be let into his body. David realized that this must be the union with God that he'd waited for over the past 20 years of meditation and study. All of it had led him to that point. David believed that only a select few individuals throughout history had been lucky enough to establish a direct connection to God. He counted Buddha, Krishna, and Jesus as individuals who qualified as manifestations of God. In 1987, David Swanson joined this elite group. He felt God's presence trying to enter his body, and he surrendered to this overpowering force. He underwent a full transformation, becoming God's heavenly host. After this conversion, David called himself Garasana, the Golden One. His wife, Carol, wholeheartedly accepted her husband's role as the vessel of God. It's not exactly clear when she too became enlightened, but she later adopted a new name, Kalindi. Once they had established their new identities, they were ready to share David's holy connection with the world. At some point, they formed a close relationship with a woman named Gail and drew her into the fold. She, too, assumed a new name, calling herself The Lady. Little is known about The Lady. According to one anonymous former follower of the group, she was a schoolteacher when she first met Garasana and Kalindi. She described herself as an angry person before the pair exposed her to their beliefs. Once she adopted the ways of Garasana, though, she let go of her ego and found peace and happiness. 
At this point, the lady came to believe that she was destined to teach the world how to pray and find God. Kalindi and the lady soon became devoted to taking care of Garasana and catering to his every need. He reportedly took up some eccentric behaviors, dressing in robes and growing out his pinky fingernail. None of this deterred his two fervent devotees. In fact, he accumulated more disciples. Initially, the group remained small, only seven individuals. There was Kalindi, their young daughter Maha, the lady, and four others, Jim, Hana, Marie, and Candy. Other than their first names, there is little else known about them. Garasana called this group of seven the core. He described them as the few people who had unshakable faith in him. Garasana taught his followers that they too could achieve a close spiritual connection with God. Garasana said the ultimate goal was to leave the earthly physical plane entirely. He felt that reality was only an illusion, distracting human beings from the truth and beauty of the spiritual plane. Garasana said that all human souls originated from this spiritual plane. Garasana borrowed from an assortment of religious traditions and preached that as soon as we're born on earth, we move further away from God. When human beings are reincarnated and reborn on earth again and again, we remain distant from God. Therefore, humans should work to escape the death and rebirth cycle to permanently return to the spiritual plane. Garasana called this returning home. He acknowledged that going home wasn't an easy feat, but he gave his followers the tools to make this journey. By the 1980s, the hippie era had been firmly replaced. Idealism and spirituality gave way to consumerism and wealth. David drew on this culture shift. He told his followers that most people were trapped in the physical plane, weighed down by material possessions and unhealthy relationships. These unfortunate masses would always be blind to what mattered. But with enough meditation and discipline, Garasana's followers could achieve transcendence filled with love, free from anger and fear. And eventually, this would bring them home. Garasana called his process the Garasana Meditation Practice. He preached to his devotees that they could only access God through his guided meditation. Garasana, therefore, created a culture in which his followers depended on him for salvation. But they didn't mind practicing obedience to their master. They saw it as a gift. Eventually, under his tutelage, core followers decided that they had transformed as well. They weren't on the same level of Garasana as God incarnate, but they claimed they could channel his voice. Kalindi and the lady gave themselves the title Masters for the World, both capable of leading others to God's path. By 1991, four years after David Swanson's transformation into Garasana, the group decided to reach a broader audience. The 41-year-old and his core group began placing advertisements in local newspapers in San Diego. For a $10 admission, the group promised that attendees could spend the evening with God himself. The Corps made sure to make recordings of these lectures to not only preserve, but share Garasana's teachings. Garasana told these listeners that he could help them leave their illusions behind and enter the true realm of existence. All they had to do was join his flock. In the early days, the group went by many names, but most commonly they were called Miracle of Love. Once they forged this distinct identity, Garasana's speeches and lecture series became regular events in the San Diego area. He proclaimed to his listeners, I am Garasana, and I can take you home because I know where home is. What an opportunity you have. It is a gift being offered. 
Please take it. Dozens of people did just that. Garasna converted his audience by talking directly to vulnerable people, those with low self-esteem or who experience self-loathing. He told them he could help them destroy the mental blocks that held them back. Many of these people were dealing with painful realities, such as broken relationships or failed marriages. They felt comforted in hearing that all their suffering was merely an illusion that could be discarded. They desperately wanted to believe that they could forget about their troubles on the earthly plane and someday move to a better one. Garasana told them that they had to let go of earthly attachments. This often meant that they handed over their money and belongings to him. This allowed Garasana to accumulate a fair amount of wealth to further fund his group's expansion. He assured his growing number of followers that they were donating their possessions to God himself, and in doing so, they were submitting to him. By surrendering to God and holding back nothing, they were setting themselves free. But it wasn't just a matter of giving up objects. When Garasana told his followers to abandon attachments, he wasn't just referring to their possessions. He argued that they should let go of everything that formed the basis for their identity on Earth. He said, who you think you are, your personality, your mind, your body, is all an illusion. It all must be given up in order to leave this realm of illusion. Maybe Garasana believed all this, but maybe he had another motive. If he convinced his followers to destroy their individuality and ignore their inner voice, it would be easier for him to control them. Garasana developed a specific method to break down his listeners, all under the guise of facilitating a spiritual breakthrough. Once hooked, he invited prospective converts to purchase tickets to spiritual seminars that lasted several days. During this time, attendees often slept and ate very little. Core group members then interrogated these hungry, tired participants about their most painful memories. They criticized and berated attendees, only then to shower them with love and affection by hugging and cuddling. They overwhelmed participants with loud music and urged them to take part in dancing and singing sessions to stimulate an endorphin rush. In the end, the guests were exhausted and emotionally drained, but it was also cathartic. This weakened state made them vulnerable to Garasana's suggestions and promises. Once Garasana had someone under his influence, he discouraged them from speaking to any outsiders who might persuade them to abandon their newfound spirituality. One family member whose sister joined the group in 1991 said that miracle of love kept her out of contact with family for the first few years to make sure our skepticism would not infect her. Garasana's method mimics an effective technique called Large Group Awareness Training, or LGAT, which became popular in the 1970s and 80s. Cult experts Margaret Singer and Yanya Lalich wrote critically of Large Group Awareness Training in her book, Cults in Our Midst. Singer and Lalich said, LGAT programs tend to last at least four days and usually five. She noted that many who attend these seminars do so without information about how psychologically, socially, and sometimes physically stressing the event can be. But the exhausting, overwhelming aspect of these seminars was precisely what Garasana used to his advantage. With this method, he drew in people from all walks of life, targeting the successful and wealthy, whose fortunes helped fund the group. He turned them into true believers. It's estimated that Garasana accumulated hundreds of close followers, and perhaps thousands more participated in his intensive seminars. With each new seminar, money continued pouring into the group leader's pockets, and soon Garasana would draw in the kind of fortune he could only dream of.
Up next, Garasana's group achieves their biggest triumph yet. Now back to the story. By 1992, 42-year-old Garasana had found success beyond his wildest dreams. He claimed that he'd become the divine incarnate and preached a message of enlightenment to anyone who listened. He recruited hundreds through his intense seminars in which he broke participants down and conditioned them to feel beholden to him. Once they had joined the group, followers usually took on new names as a symbolic adoption of a new identity. Their day-to-day activities drastically changed as well. Miracle of Love members led a rigorous life. In addition to meditating and attending spiritual seminars, they were encouraged to perform duties on behalf of the group. One former follower, under the pseudonym Frank, told the San Diego City Beat that they keep everybody very busy and under a tremendous amount of stress. There's a lot of service work. Everybody has responsibilities to keep the mission going. I was given 20 to 48 hours a week of service work assignments on top of my job. You're totally immersed in it. They create jobs just to keep people busy so you don't have time to question anything. But recruits didn't always see what Frank saw. They thought they were embarking on the road to God, and they were willing to sacrifice anything for the opportunity. One of Garasana's most devoted converts was a woman named Kendra Gamble. Kendra was a descendant of one of the founders of Procter & Gamble and had inherited a $10 million fortune. Though Kendra came from a wealthy and privileged background, she felt unfulfilled. In the early 1990s, she reeled from a recent divorce and searched for guidance. In 1992, she overheard someone talking about one of Garasana's seminars. She listened to them describe it as an opportunity to achieve full enlightenment in this lifetime. The description intrigued Kendra. She was tired of feeling like something was missing from her life, and she felt ready to do anything to escape the sense of emptiness that nagged her. She decided to attend a seminar. Kendra described the experience as incredibly cathartic, saying that she faced pain, let go, danced, cried, and was very open. After three days, she felt the presence of God. This culminated in her meeting Garasana. With tears in her eyes, she thanked him for what he had given her. She claimed that she could feel the love and truth in his presence. She wished everyone on earth could feel what she felt. Garasana told her that this was possible. The world just had to be told. Kendra wanted to help Garasana any way she could. Over the next few years, Kendra handed over her entire fortune to his group. She said, I knew it was God, so I would give everything. I gave my life, myself, my rich lifestyle, my money, my time, my devotion. I just gave everything, and I never felt freer. With converts like these, Garasana never had to worry about money again. Even as he told his followers to let go of material things, he accumulated them at a rapid pace. Soon, Garasana and his wife Kalindi lived in luxury, even if it went against their message of letting go of material attachments. The group established a spiritual center in San Diego, and in addition to their property, Kalindi and Garasana took a liking to expensive clothing and luxury goods. They earned a reputation for generosity by freely giving many of these extravagant possessions away to their followers. This allowed them to pay lip service to the idea of rejecting materialism. One devotee later said, 
every time I was with Kalindi, she gave me something. It was no different for her other disciples and for the children. Whenever Kalindi was with the children, she gave them a gift to remember her by. But it wasn't much of a sacrifice for them to give their belongings away, since they could afford whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Garasana must have felt truly blessed as he surveyed his good fortune. In just a few years, he had gone from supposedly lying prostrate in the woods to leading a growing religious empire. Unfortunately for him, it wouldn't last. In the mid-1990s, Garasana's health began to fail. The group was cagey about what caused his illnesses. They claimed that the burden of hosting God's energy drained and weakened Garasana's physical body. In one of their written statements, they said that Everything that we've been blessed to realize has come about because of David Swanson's transformation and his allowing Garasana to manifest. David Swanson knew that his transformation would be difficult and his life would be shortened, but nothing stopped him from his absolute surrender to God. This effusive statement didn't prevent speculation about his health, even among Garasana's devotees. Some said he suffered from a mysterious immune disorder, while others suggested he may have been sick from complications caused by AIDS. However, no clear answer on Garasana's diagnosis materialized. Whatever the case, Garasana's followers framed his decline as a sacrifice he made on their behalf. His illness cemented Garasana's position as their martyr and savior. In his final months, he must have known he was close to death, and he didn't want there to be any confusion about the future of his group he made his choice of successor clear. He took Kalindi aside and gave her a message. He told his wife, from the very beginning, I told you that you were the voice of God. When someone touches you, Kalindi, they move closer to God just by your touch. And of course, when you speak, every time they listen to you speak, they move closer to God. On March 24, 1995, 45-year-old Garasana died in San Diego, California. According to his followers, he wasn't gone, he'd simply transcended this plane. They grieved that they could no longer bask in his presence, but there was little disorder as Kalindi seamlessly stepped into her role as the new leader of the group. Her first disciple, the Lady, became her number two. Kalindi soon made it clear that she wouldn't let her husband's message die out. The group had kept tape recordings of many of Garasana's lectures, even from the earliest days of his transformation. They played these recordings to followers both old and new. Over time, they transcribed them. In 1998, 43-year-old Kalindi had a book published, Breaking the Cycle of Birth and Death. The book contained manuscript excerpts of Garasana's teachings from 1987 through 1990. This text became the group's Bible. Anyone involved with the organization was reportedly required to keep a copy of this book in their possession. But even as she heralded her husband's words, Kalindi wanted to cultivate a unique persona of authority. Earlier that year, Kalindi published a book of her own, entitled Ultimate Freedom, Union with God. Besides advice for living and inspirational quotes, Kalindi filled the book with provocative photographs. In many of these pictures, she was either nude or dressed in dominatrix-style clothing. Kalindi quickly proved that she could draw in new followers just as easily as her husband had. As her photographs demonstrate, she may have been able to use sex appeal in ways he couldn't. In a 2019 interview with The Cut, cult expert Dr. Yanya Lalich described how sex can be a powerful tool exploited by those seeking power. Lalich said, 
cult leaders figure out that controlling someone sexually is one of the most effective ways you can control a person because it's that deep part of yourself. Not every cult has sexual abuse or exploitation, but certainly a good percentage of them do. It's not entirely clear what kind of sexual practices the group encouraged. However, one former member later indicated that Kalindi discouraged monogamy because it fostered an attachment to just one person. Kalindi felt that all her followers' energies should be devoted to their relationship with God. Any attachment to a partner or spouse might compromise that. A former member said that as part of their lesson in breaking free from the material world, they were pushed to step over their sexual boundaries. Thus, Kalindi seemed to incorporate sex into Garasana's essential message. It became just one more way, along with meditation and prayer, to establish a better connection with God and escape the death and rebirth cycle. The same core philosophy remained, now just with a new face and attitude. The peppy Kalindi seemed all too eager to step into her role as the new avatar for God's presence on Earth. Though she didn't call herself an incarnation of God as her husband did, she felt that Garasana spoke through her. On the Miracle of Love website, she was referred to as the Voice of God. God's new voice set out to establish new centers around the country and abroad, using their large reserve of cash. Miracle of Love centers sprang up in Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. It wasn't long before Kalindi proved herself to be more adept at spreading Garasana's message than he ever was. But with their message rapidly spreading, they courted controversy that nearly caused everything to come crashing down. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Garasana's story. Next, we'll explore how the group faced increased scrutiny and accusations of abuse, and how they became more secretive in response. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.